Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Matt D'Elia is Confused. This is Matt D'Elia and we are now back and it is the 4th of July and because um, I took a little break and now I'm back and it's the 4th of July and America stuff. Uh, I'm actually going to drop two episodes today. This is the first of the two of our 4th of July extravaganza, focusing on uh, shit that's wrong with America. Uh, what a way to celebrate, right? Uh, the first uh, guest, uh, guests are back too. So these last couple of days, uh, I've been interviewing a couple people, uh, dusting off my interviewing skills. Hopefully, I still have them. But uh, my first guest for this 4th of July extravaganza is uh, retired Sergeant Carl Tenenbaum of the uh, San Francisco Police Department. Carl is now a speaker for LEAP, which stands for Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. Carl was a narcotics officer uh, for part of his tenure as uh, a member of of the SFPD and that experience greatly impacted um, his view on policing and what the police do. And after he retired, he joined Leap as a, uh, a very outspoken uh, critic of America's war on drugs, the so-called war on drugs, which is an epic uh, failure. Um, which we get into uh, the various levels of that. And talking to Carl was great. You know, I, I've been wanting to talk to someone involved in law enforcement and uh, considering everything that's fucking going on in the world right now, in the country right now. Uh, and we not only talk about the failed drug war and how it's failed and how we could turn it around and what ending the prohibition on drugs would do, all drugs, yes, all drugs. Carl thinks all drugs should be legal, and so do I. And we get into that, uh, the specifics of that, and how a world, how a country that legalizes drugs could look moving forward. Uh, and then we all obviously also talk about things that are very much in the news right now the militarization of the modern police force, police brutality against black Americans. Um, and the, really the, 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 the racist roots of the war on drugs in the first place and the toll it has taken, uh, which um, is vast and has been going on for decades. And clearly it is time for a change in many ways uh, for the uh, American police force. And we get into all that. Carl is obviously an expert on such matters. I am not. Uh, uh, so, uh, without further delay, here is my conversation with retired Sergeant Carl Tenenbaum. Hope you guys have a safe 4th of July. Okay.
name's Carl Tenenbaum, although I, I go by the moniker of Carl T. It's kind of a pet name. <laughs> uh, born, born and raised in San Francisco in the late 50s, for lack of a better definer, and uh, grew up in the city. Um, kind of from an early age, I always felt like I wanted to be a cop, but I never really followed any direct path to that. I tell people that because, you know, a lot of professional cops go to, you know, criminology courses and stuff, and mm. I kind of... I grew up kind of running the streets of San Francisco and, um, you know, dropped out of high school, bummed around and stuff, but, you know, got, got my GED, went back and took some other classes. And then, uh, um, I actually was a paramedic before I was a police officer. And then in uh, 1981, I joined the San Francisco police department and I was there for 32 years in 1981. And I retired in 2013. And over the course of my career, I worked, almost every conceivable assignment you can think of. I was uh, started off as a beat cop in uh, San Francisco's Tenderloin, which is kind of a gritty inner city neighborhood. And then uh, just, just bounced around. I worked in uh, the chief's office for a while, had different patrol assignments. But, uh, you know, the I think the reason we're going to have a lot of conversation today is I spent three years in the Narcotics Bureau in the uh, in the mid-80s. And then again, I did a lot of plainclothes enforcement in the 90s too, mostly focused on drug enforcement and uh, the crack cocaine epidemic. And uh, yeah, that's kind of it. You know, I had a very celebrated career and then I retired in, uh, like I said, 2013. And uh, in that entire time, um, I had lived in the city too. So I've been a lifelong resident of, resident of San Francisco. And then uh, when I retired, I moved up north into uh, West Sonoma County, which is kind of the wine country area. And that's where I'm happily ensconced and sheltering in place today. Great. Okay. So I, I've read some of your work. I, I read some of the, uh, your articles on Medium, and I think it was San Francisco Chronicle, perhaps. But um, I would yeah. love to sort of talk a little bit about, uh, before we even get into Leap at all and what that is, sort of your um, trajectory from um, where maybe your mind was uh, before you were a narcotics officer up to that period and then sort of how your mind may have shifted or your mind may have opened to the problems with the so-called drug war uh, and, and such. Yeah. You know, that that's an interesting kind of a narrative and, and I'll try and put it in perspective. Like I said, I grew up in San Francisco in the sixties and the seventies. So mm. needless to say, I was exposed to a lot of, you know, variety of cultures. And um, obviously, you know, I mean, I grew up maybe two miles from Golden Gate Park and the Haight-Ashbury. Mm. So, you know, I was constantly, you know, at, at a young age, really aware of, you know, drug usage and the counterculture and the hippies and stuff like that. Yeah. And, and, you know, the fact that I, I, like I said, I ran the streets, you know, I was, I was palling around with people. We were getting into a little bit of trouble, nothing serious, but my attitude then was, it was not a big deal. Like mm -hmm. I said, I was exposed to it and I saw it. And even though, you know, my family, my parents had friends who were more conservative and, you know, Vietnam War. I mean, everything was happening in the 60s and the 70s, it feels like, although right. I think that's an understatement compared to now. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> so, so you know, when I joined the police department, it was, like I said, it was kind of a dream, but I didn't have any hard and fast philosophies about drug usage. In fact, I really was kind of ambivalent about it. It just mm -hmm. didn't impact me that much. And, and even in early age, I saw that you know, people using drugs, I mean, obviously there's a portrayal of, you know, stoned out hippies and all this other stuff. It didn't really, personally, I didn't see that up, up front, up close and personal, you know, it's like I was out there. So I joined the police department and, you know, right away I was really deeply immersed in the culture. And, you know, it's, sometimes it sounds like there's sort of a brainwashing that goes on, but it's not so much that it's just that you're, you're in this fraternity 
And there's this whole kind of a fraternal mindset where you want to be one of the guys and you want to hang out and you want to do well. And then there's also, you know, how do you prove yourself as to being a good cop? So early on in my career, I was a really proactive cop. I did a lot of police works, you know, so to speak, and arrested people. Um, drugs weren't, you know, this was in the early, this was in 1981 when I joined. Um, drugs weren't quite the the big problem or issue that they've turned out to be and mm-hmm. i'm you know like attributed a lot to the um crack situation man i know we're we're not live right no we're not no yeah okay because i've got i've got dog issues here so we're oh, no problem every once in a while no problem i have some I, dog barking at me here i have that every once in a while as well nothing we can do about those dogs yeah yeah no i've i've got three of them one of them's my needy boy <laughs> so you know, so I get, I get in the police department and, you know, just kind of going through the motions. And like I said, I was a beat cop in the tenderloin. So there was, there were a lot of, you know, different social issues. But the one thing that I should probably, you know, preface all this with is, you know, my personality, I'm a, I'm a big people person mm-hmm. and I'm very um, verbose. So I really like interacting and I really liked walking a beat. It was, it was really kind of right in my wheelhouse. And I enjoyed meeting the community and getting to know them. And narcotics enforcement, like I said, it wasn't the kind of the knee plus ultra, but it was something that, you know, I'm going to make a lot of general statements, but I'll tell you, narcotics enforcement is easy. It's, mm. a, it's a real, it's it's easy to do. It's like, you know, shooting fish in a barrel, for lack of a better term, right. cliche or analogy. So, you know, so I'm walking the beat and, and the deal is, you know, I took pride in what I did. And there's, a, there's an old saying, like I said, the police culture is, you know, you go out, you take responsibility for your beat. And early on, what you would do, we would have, we would have a whole routine where we would go out early in the day. I used to work swing shifts. So I get to work about three in the afternoon, go down to my beat. And within the first hour or so, you'd make an arrest for back then. It was a lot of uh, possession of marijuana for sale or just straight possession. Mm-hmm. Um, so we would make the arrest. And, and that's the term that we would use in the police and police work. Uh, it's called paying the rent. You know, you get, you get a body, you get your body, you get your body to the station, you know, so then the sergeant and the, the lieutenant, they all, you know, they're happy that you've been productive. And then kind of the rest of the day was sort of my own to walk around, talk to the merchants, you know, get involved in any social issues I saw, go have a nice dinner. I mean, mm-hmm. it was it was a pretty sweet gig. Right. And, and, you know, that was my operation for the first six years of my life. And then in the mid 80s, uh, when I had about four or five years in the business, that's when crack started to come on the scene. And and it was definitely, I mean, it had an impact on the community, on society. And it was really, I think it overwhelmed everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, people that were on the receiving end, the using end, the enforcement end. And, you know, you can see that in the politics at the time. So here I am, you know, a beat cop in the tenderloin. And somehow by, by I don't know, it was luck or whatever, I got tapped to go to um, the Narcotics Bureau. Mm-hmm. So I get transferred down there and this was done in uh, direct response to the uh, crack epidemic. And that was 1987. And I want to say crack, I, you know, I ballparked it around 1985, mid 80s when it happened. Okay. So 1987, I go down to the narcotics unit and um, it's, it's for lack of a better term, it's balls to the wall. I mean, we're out there, you know, the narcotics unit in that probably two year window went from about 20 cops to about 120 cops. They just really, you know, made it this whole big, big operation. And for me, you know, I was never, and I'm going to use some loose analogies here, I was never a big, you know, I'm, I'm a baseball guy when it comes to sports, and I was never a big team sport player guy, but there was this kind of a cool fraternal 
brotherhood in the narcotics unit. And a lot of guys that I was in the academy with and a lot of guys I worked with. And it was really, it did. It looked like a football team, you yeah. know, mostly, mostly white guys, mostly big white guys, which I fall into that category. Mm. Um, so, so for me, it was, um, and also I like to work and, and I enjoy doing police work. And even though, like I said, my, my overall view on drugs was somewhat ambivalent, it was kind of a cool operation to be in. Number one, you're not in uniform, so you're not kind of a slave to the radio or you don't have to do answer all the, you know, petty neighborhood squabbles. You're out there doing like, you know, rough and tumble police work. So, so it was kind of, um, for lack of a better term, it was kind of cool. Right. You know, you're out there running and running and gunning and doing all this stuff, operations and search warrants and everything. And, and like I said, it's really exciting. And I'm kind of, a, uh, you know, I like the rush. I mm -hmm. like the adrenaline. And, and again, I like police work. So it was a lot of fun. But always in the back of my mind, I just remember thinking that, you know, you look at the, you take the long view of the whole social issue and what's happening in the areas we're tasked to go to were primarily, uh, you know, uh, low income areas, public housing areas, areas with a lot of people of color. And that was the big focus was, you know, all the, the street dealing and the street crime and the street, everything was about the street. Mm. And of course, that was always in you know, the, the areas with a lot of poverty and stuff. So, you know, it didn't take me a long time to start to go, okay, this is, this is fun and this is exciting. And also there's a lot of money to be made there too, by virtue of overtime on investigations and overtime for court appearances. So guys are in it. You know, a lot of guys are there, guys and gals, um, that you start to appreciate that you get, you get a little bit of a bump, even though it's not an official raise, yeah. you're making money. So all of that being said, you know, it, it wasn't a terrible long time that I was down there that I started thinking, this is kind of, it just, it seems sort of, um, uh, an exercise in futility. Mm -hmm. we, you know, we would arrest people. It really was just a revolving door. We'd arrest them. We'd take them in. And then the other thing is, you know, you just start to see what I personally started to see was we would have, you know, anywhere from two to 12 cops on any specific operation. And here we're chasing people down and tackling them. A lot of stuff you're seeing on the news now, not quite to the degree that we're seeing it, but a lot of violence and a lot of, you know, the term you hear a lot of state sponsored violence. Mm -hmm. but we're, we're embarking in involved in these operations. And I just remember thinking, you know, so we just beat some guy down because he had a $10 piece of crack cocaine in his mouth and that's a felony. And we're going to take this guy to jail. And what's the reality here? This poor schmuck just wants to get high. Yeah. You know, it's just, it is just, and, and like I said, growing up in San Francisco in the sixties and seventies, getting high was commonplace. You know, right. All my buds were getting high and nobody really cared. And so, so all that starting to register in my brain and, I'm seeing my, you know, coworkers getting hurt left and right. And then, you know, we're in these situations and you go on the projects and the only time people see you is this marauding force of Hawaiian shirt wearing jeans clad white boys rushing yeah. through. Um, so, so we do all this. And like I said, I just, because of the camaraderie and because I liked the guys and gals and there was a lot of money and there's a lot of different reasons to stay there. But after about probably about two years, two and a half years, I decided I want to get out. So I actually had done, I put in a request to get transferred out, and before my request could be honored, we were doing an operation one day in the um, pretty uh, pretty rough housing projects over by uh, Eastby Army Street. Now it's uh, Cedar Sullivan's born. Um, anyway, we were doing an operation. We pull up and, and we see a drug deal going down in a doorway, and this guy's holding a bag of probably about an ounce of of uh, crack cocaine, which back then and even now was a big that was a big haul for yeah. you know, street cops. 
So my partner gets out, uh, the other cars, there was four of us working together, two separate cars. My partner gets out, the other two get out, and I was always the wheel man, so I stayed in the car. They get into a foot pursuit, they chase this guy across Cesar Chavez Boulevard. Um, they're on the radio telling me where to go. I pull into the intersection, I see my partner laying in the middle of the street. And what had happened is he was chasing the guy across his busy, you know, it's a six-lane boulevard in uh, the Mission District of San Francisco. He was chasing this guy, and uh, some guy in a delivery van uh, ran the red light and uh, hit my partner. So I get there. I see my partner laid out on the street. I can see right away that he's, you know, serious head um, trauma. Uh, Call the ambulance, and four days later, they took him off of life support. So it was really, um, and, and like I said, I had, I had been aware long before that, that this was just, this was, it was stupid. You know, what we were doing was really insane, but uh, now I lost my partner and I'm just saying, was this, was this ever worth it? You know, right. does, this, does this make any sense? So I stayed in the, I stayed in our class for about another six months. And then uh, they finally, they, uh, the, the mayor at the time, uh, and along with the chief of police, who decided that uh, they wanted to reallocate the sources. So they um, they paired the narcotics unit way back, and they transferred about three quarters of the unit back into the patrol force, which is where I went. Mm. So I went back into patrol, and then I continued on there until I got promoted and became a sergeant. And my views on drug enforcement and drugs have always been the same. And I'll say the only caveat or the only rationale that I can offer as to why I was um, – I don't say I was so aggressive about it, but the reason I bought into it is because I saw sort of the collateral damage. Again, back then, I didn't have the the kind of the global view that I have now about the gangs and stuff, Mm -hmm. but I did see a lot of violence. You know, we, a lot of operations, you know, we'd go and do search warrants and you're, you know, you're getting guns and you're getting large sums of money and you're seeing a lot of violence and and gang wars and, and turf disputes around drugs, primarily crack cocaine on the street at the time. So, so that's, that's, that's kind of in a nutshell my career arc, you know, and, yeah. I, and I kind of stayed with that. And then towards the end of my career, I got uh, my last 10 years, 12 years, I got transferred from when I got promoted, I went up to the Bayview Hunters Point, which is another really rough neighborhood in San Francisco. And a lot of, again, a lot of drug dealing, a lot of violence. But I was a sergeant and I was in uniform and I really enjoyed, I really loved the uniform. That was, that's always been my forte. So I really enjoyed that. And then the last 10 years of my career, I got sent back to uh, my, my original station, which is in um, San Francisco's North Beach, which is a real tourist rich area. Mm. And so my last 10 years was primarily, um, almost like PR work, a really good part of the city, not a whole lot of violent crime, mostly, you know, quality of life stuff. And I kind of, I kind of gravitated away from narcotics enforcement as much as I could, just because I chose not to anymore. Right. Um, and, and then, uh, and then upon retirement, that's when I found leap and, and really started, like I said, take the long view of what, what's going on with narcotics enforcement in, in America. And, and I do air quotes every time the war on drugs. Right. Right. Um, I, there's a lot in there actually that I want to touch on, uh, something that, uh, you've written about and that you did hit on, when, uh, just especially now with everything that's going on in the world, you, you, you talked about the racial element and sort of the class element of going into these uh street level areas where um you know it's predominantly people of color and there where my mind goes is that and i know this was this your thing at the moment at the time in san francisco was about the crack cocaine epidemic but when i think about um the people that i know i just drug use seems to be indiscriminate in terms of um skin color as in people of all 
races use drugs and and i'm 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 assuming i don't want to put words in your mouth you tell me but was there an element of of because that was the area where it was condensed and it was sort of easy i guess low-hanging fruit i think that might have been a term that you've used before actually is is there an element of why why there specifically and 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 is there uh a, a more of, of, of a systematic reason why we see uh, the persecution of people of color who use drugs more so than white people who use drugs. I'm, I'm sort of interested in the way the machinations of that behind the scenes, you know, because a lot of us see the result of that, but I'm curious as to how it works uh, from the actual police perspective in terms of getting out there, making arrests and, and, and meeting your requirements for arrest and all those kinds of things. Uh, <laughs> now you've given me a lot to unpack. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'll start with the general the general overview without going too deeply into. It. I think uh, obviously you go back to the you know, early nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties when when the, you know the the drug, DEA uh, Harry Anslinger and the history of the racism in drug enforcement. Yeah, and that's that's a, that's a, a, a it's not even a debatable point. And anybody that wants to debate debate needs to do you know brush up on history but so so the system's already rigged it's already designed specifically to to target either you know minorities uh people that are less desirable whether they're hippies or you know again go through the history of the drug war for 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 me to go out there my observation was this and is this and and i'm gonna preface it by saying you know i'm not a sociologist Mm -hmm. and, and i don't have a lot of you know knowledge besides what i read but but what i saw again going back to my history i grew up in san francisco in the 60s and 70s if i wanted no matter what drug i wanted i could find it i could get it yeah and and it was it was it was commonplace I'm going to say that, you know, I grew up in a white middle class neighborhood predominantly, and we all had homes and we all had places to go. So, you know, my buddy that wanted to, to buy whatever, his nickel bag of marijuana or, you know, a, you know, a bindle of cocaine or whatever, you'd go get your hookup and then you'd go home and you would do it. Yeah. Now, if you go into, so, so there's the drug usage, and I think the studies and the numbers support the fact that, that you know, drug usage and drug addiction, it, it really is colorblind. There's no, I don't think there's any one race, creed, or color that has the market cornered on drug usage and and again like i said i think the numbers support that but you know in my case growing up you know we had a we had a safe place to go if, if we wanted to go get high or whatever we were doing whereas if you get into communities that have been historically oppressed where people are crammed together where there's you know low income and, and a lot of poverty and whatever associated social problems are if people don't have the luxury of, of either a, have a luxury of a place to go or B, and this is going to sound kind of weird, there's a lot more socializing that goes on, especially on the street in areas like that. You know, they may not have the resources to, you know, they may not have a movie theater. And again, I'm just talking off the top sure. here. But so, so, so there would be a lot more activity on the street. And I say activity in the most general term. People would just hang out. They would just congregate. They would just party. They would just, they would do whatever because that was sort of the dynamic. And um, so, so you would see congregating people, you would see groups of people, and then we would get complaints. And that's the funny thing is a lot of what is a lot of enforcement in, in police work and not just drug enforcement, it's generated by citizens, it's generated or civilians, I should say, it's generated by people that are complaining about stuff. So we would get a lot of complaints. And then again, because there is, you know, a violent 
there's there's a lot of violence attached to drug dealing and drug usage just because of you know turf wars and stuff like that. We would we would see some of that. So that's that's why again we were we were directed to these areas specifically. If you told me to go back to my old neighborhood where I grew up, well, you don't see a lot of people hanging out on the street. You don't see a lot of drug dealing on the street because that's just not the dynamic. And that's not to say that it's not happening. It's just right. not the dynamic. So we were never sent to, you know, the white parts of town unless we had a specific complaint. And usually it was a bar. That's, it's just the irony of that. In most of our complaints in the white neighborhoods it was like somebody was dealing out of a bar. They're mm-hmm. doing, you know, coping. Uh, every once in a while you get the random, this person in a house. And even then you had to be able to get in there and do it. Whereas out in the, the neighborhoods of oppression, um, the term that I use, yeah. it's, it's just, it's, it's a little bit more flagrant. And then also you have a lot of people that are in dire states, straits and that are desperate. So they become sources of information. And it's just sort of like this, you know, vicious circle of, of, of enforcement slash, you know, recidivism that we're, that we're enabling, that we're participating in as, you know, as law enforcement agency. Right. And and was that, I know this is a while ago when you were on the narcotics beat, but was that um, then uh, a concern uh, at the police level? Like, was this something, you mentioned the camaraderie and the closeness of the fellow police officers. Was this something... And I know this is anecdotal, but was it was it something on your minds in any regard? I know you said you sort of were able to take a bit of a longer view and see the effects and want and sort of want to reassign it. But was this something that was, I don't know, out in the open talked about or was this sort of just head down doing our duty? This is what we do. And no one really would talk about it. As, as far as the, the racial disparity yes, yeah, enforcement. Yeah. Um, no, we weren't, you know, I had to make a full confession here. You know, I've, I've evolved. My whole goal in life is to keep evolving. And, yeah. you know, and, and 30 years ago, I wasn't quite as evolved as I am now. And in that unit, again, picture a, a rugby team or a football team and just, you know, a, a gang of mouth breathers. We weren't the most socially introspective group of people in uh-huh. the world. So, no, there was never really any discussion about why are we going to this area or why are we targeting these people? And if anything, if you if you go and, and look at you know all of the issues that we're talking about in law enforcement now, uh, we we um, there's just like I said there's not a whole lot of um, of thought that goes into what you're doing. It's like yeah you just want to you just want to be a good soldier. You want to go out there and you want to do their thing. And and the fact that again what we're seeing in police work and a lot of the criticism is that there's just this us versus them mentality. It doesn't have to be a clearly defined you know black people or brown people or any other you know chosen group it's just the tacit unspoken this is where we're going and this is what we're doing so any discussion about being in these communities had more to do with those people Mm -hmm. you know we're we're going to come out there and we're going to drop the hammer on those people because like i said fish in a barrel like you or or you quoted me low-hanging fruit it's easy and it's easier if your whole job is to if your whole job is to go out and, and, and do a specific task and you know you know where the fishing hole is, where all the fish are, you're not going to the middle of the ocean. You're going to go there. So so that's what we did. And again, but there, no, there, w- there was no real discussion. There was right. no concern about, hey, are we are we being discriminatory or racist or doing like that? And and so, yeah, no, there was <laughs> that, right. that was not a. A conscious discussion. It just it, it, it's 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 interesting to see the layers of it in talking to you because you know you, there's there's an element of 
you never know what someone is individually in someone's mind or, or in their heart, but you're talking about, you know, this, this early on, this sort of adoption of this mentality of being a good soldier, the camaraderie, the team element. And then in, you infuse that layer with this sort of, um, system that that provides the low-hanging fruit and the system that sort of enforces this 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 uh i don't want to call it laziness but it really it the system serves the 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 perpetuation of the exist of the existing system and it just keeps going and going and i think that it's it's easy to look at i think single cops or even individual cops sometimes and but, but what i it, what i hear often makes me th think it's so it has so little to do with individual cops and more about the system in which that they're put into regardless of what the cop thinks regardless of what the cop is on the cop's mind or in the cop's heart it doesn't at a certain point it doesn't really matter because you you, you it, it is the system that perpetuates the system regardless of whatever the individual thinks and i think especially with what's going on right now, I think that that is the difficulty that people have in approaching this subject um, because it's so, you hear systemic, the word systemic used a lot, but it really is appropriate in this situation because how does one start to undo such a systemic problem, but also one that is so entrenched, you know? Um, and, and I think that that sort of provides a good segue into leap and what you're doing now and what you guys do because uh i guess yeah why don't you just tell us what leap is and then we can get into the specifics of it yeah yeah so 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 leap in, in the most general overview is leap is a, an organization of um, primarily retired uh individuals from the criminal justice system and i say individuals it ranges from we have we have judges and a lot of really high placed uh, individuals who were in the criminal justice system and the judicial system all the way down to, to guys like me you know i was just a, i was a working stiff sergeant of police but uh, it's a group of people that that have identified who realize like me again that, that they have awareness of the problems in the system and we're trying to take our voice and use it to affect a lot of the change that's being proposed now. We've been we've been proposing for a long time, and that is just you know legalizing drugs and and dealing with all the other issues that are plaguing uh, the criminal justice system, whether it's you know, qualified immunity or the training, uh, everything about that. So so that's generally what Leap is about. And I found them by virtue of doing some research. You know, I was retired for a year or two and started getting restless, and also things were starting to happen more and more frequently with the police violence that, you know, was being televised with people, you know, the cameras. And that's how I found Leap. And I found that mm -hmm. it was a perfect fit for me. So I do a lot of what we're doing right now. I speak on behalf of the organization and just try and get the views across and, and find some middle ground to, to solving a lot of these problems that are plaguing um, society that are uh, specific to the criminal justice system. And so specifically in regards to drug the uh, the war on drugs the so-called war on drugs whatever we want to call it <clears throat> i want to be clear about this because i think even still some people when i talk about it because i'm a big i'm a big proponent and fan of the idea of legalization i want to i want you to clarify for anyone listening what you mean by that because i think some people think even legalize heroin, even legalize crack, even legalize this and that. I, I, I just want to hear the version of what what legalization means and, and why you are a proponent of it. 
So what legalization means is, is, is let me overstate the obvious. It means to, to legalize all drugs. Right. And now I know that's a, like you're saying, that's a mind boggler. And, and I don't have the, the how I just have the, the what, but we've already seen. And, and I, I think anybody, anybody, <laughs> this is my own personal opinion. Anybody that argues for criminalizing marijuana or keeping marijuana against law, which I guess there's still some States that it is and federally yeah. it's against the law. There are other minds. Yeah. They're out of their minds. Like I said, you know, you, I, I get off work and I want to go home and have a shot of whiskey or two or three. That's awesome. I want to go home and, you know, smoke a bowl. Dude, you got to look out, man. The cops might be coming. <laughs> so, so legalization for marijuana is, is a no brainer yeah. and, and it's very, it's not complicated. We've already done it. You know, we've seen the, the revenue, we've seen the benefits and we've seen the reduction in, you know, all the, the associated, you know, criminalizing and, and incarcerating people. Mm-hmm. The other, the other drugs are a little more challenging. And I think if you look at some of the models in other countries like Portugal and Sweden, where they've done it, it's you, you, it has to be a joint effort. Not only are we going these legalized drugs, it's not going to be a free for all. It's going to be addressing. When I talk about when people refer to the crack epidemic, they call it an epidemic. Mm. In my mind, like, that's, that's a medical issue. Mm. And and so we need legalization on all levels, you know, up, up to including methamphetamine. If it's done in such a way that people are um, given the opportunity for rehabilitation uh, to, you know, find alternatives uh, or to get a prescribed dose of whatever, if you're a heroin addict, you, you should, there should be a safe injection site. There should be needle exchanges. And it's just taking the, the taking the criminalization, the criminal aspect from drug usage away from being a criminal aspect and making it a medical problem. Yeah. And then once we we set up that framework, then we work within the framework of how do we do it. But that but that's what legalization means. Um, and, and it's just the general public, you know, it's sort of I think a lot of people see it as a black and white issue. And then there's the fear mongering of, you know, geez, if we legalize, we'll have all these, you know, zombie junkies walking down the street. That's just not the case. Yeah. And, and what you would see and what they see with legalizing marijuana, the benefits are so, they so outweigh. The, the, the downside of any legalizing marijuana. The same thing's true with other drugs. Instead of some person, you know, injecting heroin in your doorway, they would have a place to go and do it. Instead right. of a person injecting heroin that's been cut with fentanyl and they're dead in your doorway, they get to go to a legalized injection site where the city or the state or the county has provided some sort of medical oversight and some programs to help get people back on track and to not criminalize them and take it from their families and they lose their jobs. Again, the, the downside is the drug enforcement, not drug usage. Drug enforcement is has been cataclysmic. Right. Yeah. It, it's interesting. Uh, this is one of those issues. That, I mean, so many issues I find to be complicated and layered. This is one of those issues that when you look at the countries, as you say, Sweden, I think Switzerland, Portugal, many countries now have uh, adopted policies uh, like legalization and the numbers, if you look at them, it's so clear how well it works and, and how, how, how much it alleviates the, the, the level of disaster at the public health level. And, and also, when you take that, when you pair that in tandem with what I consider to be widely, widely understood, a widely understood fact that even when you think about when you, when you, Take any look at the origination of Nixon's war on drugs, let's say, and the racist roots of it, and you t- and you pair those things together. It seems to me like such an obvious fix, an obvious solution, uh, and it's not going to 
fix everything, but it's such an obvious step in the right direction that it does to a degree confuse me how little it really has changed uh, in the face of all that. And I, I, I'm, I'm wondering if you have any opinion on why, I, is it really just the moral objection that people have to drugs that, that has created the system that is so hard to overcome and change? I mean, even legalizing marijuana was, and it's, as you pointed out, it's not legal in every state and it's, it's still federally uh, a massive offense to have it. Uh, it just seems like it shouldn't be such a massive wall to climb, but it really is still. And I, I, it does confuse me on an elemental level when, when evidence is just, it's right in front of our faces. There are many police officers, ex-law enforcement, uh, people from uh, all, all kinds of people from, uh, the legal side, judicial side, there's so many voices that are advocates of legalization, at the very least decriminalization, and yet it is still so difficult. I'm curious as to what you might point to as a, as, as, as a reason for that. You know, you, you said something a minute ago about, you know, people's, and I forget exactly how you framed it, but, but that, you know, people's aversion to, to drugs is, yeah. is that what's driving the, you know, the criminalization. And, and I'm going to, I'm going to take it once. I'm going to open it up a little bit more, maybe not so much drugs. Like there may not be a person that's, that's like, they, they maybe have a neutral opinion about heroin. Like, yeah. oh, okay. It's, you know, morphine and medical, whatever. It's not drugs. It's drug users. Right. And, and I think I think if you look at the the bigger discussion that's taking place in the country right now with every aspect of law enforcement, it comes to back to, you know, this is the way we've always done it. This is what we know. This is how it is. And 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 then when you talk about police in general, not the individual officers, but you talk about police and police culture, it's just what we know. And then when you see the the term that I use, tackleberries, you see the you see the the, the hard ass. You see the hard-ass cops. You see the, the overly aggressive cops. And you put them in a group. Like I said, when I was narcotics, it was awesome. It was a really cool, it was like a football team mentality. Mm. So you just keep driving that. And because, you know, I don't do heroin and nobody I know does heroin, but the people that are doing heroin are really bad people. Mm. They're, you know, living in squalor and they're engaged in violence. I had to go put this fire out. I'm mm. going to go do this thing. So, so then you keep going up the ladder and you look at people – you know, it's kind of kind of a, I'm going to digress a little bit, but I, I find it interesting that I have a lot of friends and family. Let, let's put it this way. I don't have any real close friends or family that did what I did for a living. Mm -hmm. and, and I spent a lot of time when I got promoted. Like I said, I was a sergeant and they sent me out to the baby hunters point. That's like that's like the, the boogeyman of, of law enforcement in San Francisco. I loved it out there. Mm -hmm. I did. I loved it. I thrived out there. It was really cool. I love the black community because primarily a black community and they loved us. They were really good to the cops. But I'll get into discussions with people and they'll talk about you know, the black community and drug use. And I'm like, dude, I was there. Yeah. You know, I was there. And, and I don't I don't understand how you're gonna argue with me, but then you keep going up. I geez, I watched I read a crazy interview the other day with the former uh, attorney general Jeff Sessions. And I don't want to go all politics now, but I'm just reading what this guy says. I'm like, dude, it's like he lives in a cave. Yeah. It's like you have no clue what, what this what America really is. You don't. And you just want to live in this little Alabama bubble where, you know, yeah, he's espousing maybe more riot cops. They need to just go shut this thing down. It's like, dude, yeah. I was a riot cop. It's no fun, okay? But that's a different discussion for a right. different time. But 
Yeah. So, so I, I do, I think it's, I think it's not, it's not the drugs, it's the drug users. And I just think that people, you know, it's, it's being three years old and, and being afraid of the a monster in your closet. You just, you don't know, you don't have a real grasp because you don't know if there's a monster in there or not. And that's how a lot of people live. And especially because right now, and what's driven a lot of this is it's it's fear-based teaching. It's 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 fear-mongering. It's like you know you have to be afraid. Of, you know these heroin addicts, just like these illegals, they're going to come take your stuff, and it's yeah. simply not true. You know it's not true. So so we've got kind of this this society that's been a little bit of brainwashed, and it's just what they know. And then you know, every time you read, like yesterday was the headlines that where do they seize the so many tons of meth that they saw coming? I I read a little bit, oh, article, yeah. but, but this. You know, this is what sells papers. This is what drives the media. This is Fox News is all over this. So, yeah, it's like, oh, they got all these drugs. Well, wait a second. First of all, where did it come from? Where is it going? Who's using it? How do we do this? And, yeah, we're going to spend billions and trillions of dollars sending the military to Colombia to stop the cocaine. No, no. That's, how's that working out for us so far? <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, that is the, right? that is the other thing. How How is it working out for us so far? That is the ultimate, I think, endgame argument uh, because, it, because it just – it, 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 there's no ver there's no part of it that is a success. And that's been true for decades and it's endless right. and, and it's so easy to point to, but yeah, it's interesting to hear that it, 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 it it's, uh, the, the, the boogeyman to these people is drug users. Cause I think of it and, and have thought of it really as in my confusion, I just chalk it up to people, almost the reefer madness thing, people's general fear of drugs and what they might do to their loved ones. But it, but this idea of the drug user, as the boogeyman is is kind of interesting, and I hadn't I hadn't really um, considered that. I, I'm curious um, what because you know as as I was saying, as you know for sure, this is these ideas legalization. They're they're louder now, but they're not new. I'm curious as to what you think it will take to your to your eye to sort of continue to change the conversation but also change policy to really get people's minds around this idea of ending prohibition no matter how counterintuitive it might seem to you in your mind is the only solution what how do how do how do minds change well i think first of all if if, if the world doesn't burn before we get done doing this interview <clears throat> i think that you know that the time right now is ripe. i think yeah. that you know that is unsettling and depressing as the general you know tenor of the country and the world is the time is right because people if i i think we kind of <laughs> i think we 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 reached the tipping point in minneapolis about a month ago mm -hmm. where, where people just said okay enough is enough yeah. and, and even that is a really good example of you know how did how did we how did we end up with cops like Derek Chauvin? Yeah. And again, I don't want to talk specifically about that, but again, it's the mindset. Go back to what I said when I went to narcotics. I'm a big dude. I'm a big white dude, and yet that I was never a contact sports guy. I'm not mm -hmm. a violent guy, but it's it's sort of that. There's that sort of football mentality, and there's that us versus them, so it gets reinforced. So. To answer your question, the time is ripe right now. I don't know how you sell it. I think I think two things. Number one, to, to argue specifically to legalizing drugs, <laughs> and it makes me sad to admit this, but what what really drove besides progressing as a society? What drove legalization in Colorado and Oregon and California? It was the money. 
It was yeah. money. People said, okay, we're, we're obviously losing this battle, but hey, we'll join now that we realize we can make money, whether mm. it's, you know, big, big pharma, whoever's going to come in on that. So so one aspect is trying to, to, to explain to people like I do when I talk, the amount of money being spent on, on drug enforcement, and generally the public has no idea. Like I talked about you know, the overtime that cops make and that motivates them. And it doesn't matter. Like I said, you arrest a guy for a $2 piece of crack cocaine in California. That's a felony and California. That's going to get your court time. And even if it's a prelim and the guy pleads out and I'm going to use all these loose terms, you still get your three hours of overtime. Mm. The other thing that more narcotics enforcement does is it breeds, um, it breeds bad cops. It creates a lot of temptation. It puts them into really lousy situations where they justify either stealing. I've never seen really egregious behavior, but there's there's you know anecdotal evidence out there, and and you know the profile and all that stuff. So selling people on the the upsides to the to the narcotics you know enforcement and how bad it is and the other thing is i think that that now we've reached a point like i said the tipping point where we need to tear down the entire you know police criminal justice system model and, and rebuild it and when we do that when we burn it to the ground and we start building it up narcotics enforcement needs to be moved to the other part of town where in the medical community is where the social community is so i think those two if we hit it with those two prongs we might have more success than we have we treat it more humanely and we're seeing a lot of that we're seeing communities adopt you know whether the community court programs or diversion programs or rehab programs and but they're doing it more aggressively because they see the problem and i think also you know because the it seems like the country is more in tune to the racial disparity yeah. of law enforcement Enforcement, um, to sell it like that, to like, look, you really believe in Black Lives Matter. You need to stop going to these, you know, the, these these oppressed areas and jacking people up and, right. you know, arresting them for petty violations. So I, I think it's going to take we need to keep doing what we're doing as far as we like you and I and, and the conscientious people and people with some insight. Um, that's what it's going to take. It's going to take it. But we have to we can't back. We can't let off the pedal. We have to stay on it. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh there's so much more to it uh, beyond even just this this scope of the brutality that we see so much of there's so much m even more even more to it uh this idea of why uh people of color are targeted especially why the drug war is 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 a failure not just because of uh oh hey it's not so bad to do drugs but it's really it's this it's this there's so many elements to it pointing to the same sort of thing. And as you're describing this idea of, which is, which is gaining in steam and, and sort of, uh, finally is at the forefront. This idea of, okay, the way to do this is to tear it all down and rebuild it. I, I, I think what I, what I'm most curious about, because I think people like us who think that way and advocate for those, those kinds of things, I am curious, especially someone who has no involvement with law enforcement whatsoever, how that works from you, from going from one such deep, such a deeply entrenched system into a brand new system that sort of is more tailored to community and harm reduction uh, and things like this. I know you don't have all the answers, but I'm curious as to whether Leap advocates for anything in terms of how it goes from what it is now to what uh what leap advocates and and even wider to to really sort of 
getting that new system. I think people have such, uh, and rightly, I think people have such exhaustion of looking to the federal government or even their own state's government to try to figure it out from the top down. And I think people are starting to finally realize that this is going to kind of have to come from the ground up. And it is, but still, I think there is some sort of, um, I don't know if confusion is the right word, but for lack of a better term, as to how that can happen, can be implemented. Because you talk, when I think about the entrenchment, I think of unions that, uh, that don't want the system to change, as you point out, you know, even just something as simple as overtime, that, as you say, can breed bad behavior because it's incentivizing something that is not helping, something that is deeply further entrenching the problem. You know, uh, if there's an, an economic incentive for an individual cop, that cop will take that economic incentive, generally speaking. So I'm curious as to what it might look like or how we might go about actually uprooting, burning down and starting anew. I mean, that's such a big, broad question. And I know you don't have the answer, but, but I do think that is a question on people's minds of, okay, we all know it needs to change, but this is such a massive beast that we don't know how to start doing that. Absolutely. It, it is, it is very daunting and, and it's just, but we have to do something. So, so you're right. So where do we start and what do we do? And again, leaps, leaps position overall is legalization and how we get the message out is again, me and you know, people in leap sharing the information with other people, tearing the system down is, is going to be tricky, but it has to be done. And I look at, you know, I look at my own agency, which, you know, and I, and I, <laughs> I always have to put this out there. I was really lucky to grow up in a really cool city in a really cool time in spite of the turbulence. And the reality is, San Francisco Police Department, in spite of some of the scandals that we've had, it's a really forward-thinking and really progressive police department. Yeah. Um, the administration, the police commission, you know, you didn't see, and I, I've been communicating with some union uh, officials there recently, and I told them I'm really proud that I didn't see any highlight reels on the evening news over the past month with San Francisco cops beating somebody down. Right. Um, and, and again, I'll digress a little bit. I watched these videos when in my career, now it's been almost 40 years since I joined the police department and, you know, six, seven since I retired. We never, we never used tear gas. Never, ever, never. Not in my career, not in 40 years did we ever use tear gas. And we didn't use pepper spray during crowd control situations individually with the resisting person. So when I watch the news, I'm, dude, I was a cop and I'm appalled at what yeah. I'm saying. It's, it's. It's nuts. It's just like, yeah, it's, you know, sometimes I've, if I turn down the volume, I think I was watching highlights from, you know, Fallujah or something. Yeah. It's, it's just crazy. It is scary to see. Um, uh, it's such, such, so often it, too, the imagery is sort uh, of coming at us nonstop. And it, yeah, it's, it's war zone like. It's, it's, it, it the military, the militarization of the police is something that I think is on people, a lot of people's minds. And, 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 and I think that rightfully so. I mean, even when you see their gear, the things that they're doing, it, it seems like they're too much like the military, I think, to a lot of people. And I think that they're, to my eye, that's the correct assessment. It doesn't look like the, even the police that I saw, and this isn't to say that police were better or then or now, it just the military style approach of the police is certainly something that is alarming to the eye. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and it's funny because when, when that term, they talk about power, it's a police work is a, it's a paramilitary organization. And it's funny because when I was in the academy, 
they use that term. And the only thing that meant to me then, and maybe I was oversimplifying, was I just thought it had to do with the actual structure of, you know, you have a, you have a chief and you have captains and you have sort of like the military. And I didn't realize that we were basing everything on that. And yeah, the militarization, um, you know, I'll just, yeah, the, the, that, that'll be a different, that'll be a different podcast because right. it's, it is, it is nutsos. And, you know, and I was doing the math the other day and I thought, okay, when I joined the police department, we, they gave us a department issue revolver, which eventually we get semi-automatics. And then every, um, every, we call them radio cars, patrol car, prowler, whatever you want to call it. They all had shotguns in them. So, you know, you got two cops with two guns and then a shotgun in my career in 32 years and thousands upon thousands upon thousands of interactions with people yeah i pulled my gun a few times quite a few times i never shot anybody so wow. you look at okay i have all this armament and all this stuff and i never needed it well then about six or seven years before i retired maybe a little bit more they started issuing uh, ar-15s and Jesus. and you know the argument is always like hey man the bad guys have more armaments the bad guys have greater guns we need this because what's that buzz phrase it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when right. so we need the city to buy us a hundred thousand dollars worth of you know this and that's not even touching on the tanks and the yeah. anti-aircraft stuff so so yeah that's and it's funny because people do you'll see the meme all the time where it shows like the you know, Andy Griffith or the, you know, Norman Rockwell cops sitting on the stool yeah. next to the kid. And then it shows these, you know, the robocops. It's just like, how do we get from there to there? Yeah. Well, I was the Andy Griffith cop. You know, I was that right. cop. And, and I never, I never, but that's my own personally. I never really liked it. I also never saw the need for it because I'm not a fear monger. You know, I, again, 32 years on the street, I saw some gnarly shit. But the reality is 90% of my job was fun times. Right. It was, you know, or, or it was stagnancy. It was just... So, so yeah, the, the militarization thing is, it's goofy. Again, it's like a lot of the stuff we're doing is goofy, but uh, so I want to get back to you yeah. tearing down the model and it, and it's acknowledging the fact that right now in this country, we have how many hundreds of thousands of cops. We're not going to just, you know, fire them all. And there is a need for police for certain things. Right. But I think what you need to do is, is, is hit the stop button or hit the pause button. We need to hit the pause button and say, okay, this is what we acknowledge. We acknowledge that we do need police for certain situations. So we will have some sort of police services. I don't even like the term. First of all, police force. Again, we never use that term in San Francisco, not for 30 years. Right. You know, you have police agencies or police services. But so, so you grandfather in the existing cops, but you really, we have to be really clear. Here's our new policy. Our new policy is we no longer do narcotics enforcement. We no longer are first responders to people in, you know, um, psychiatric or mental health crisis only if there's a real threat of violence. So there has to be some parameters that you sort of have to try to imbue amongst the existing police force. And then what we have to do is we have to reset all of these academies. We need to turn them into police colleges mm -hmm. and we need to de-emphasize all the weaponry. And all of the self-defense techniques and all the violence and all the aggression and all the order giving. And we need to re refocus it on obvious psychology, sociology, constitutional law. You know, as in a police academy, I don't think we got five minutes on constitutional law. Yeah. You know, they touch on first and first and fourth amendments, the big one, you know, search and seizure. And even then it's kind of like, okay, how do you get around the fourth amendment? So, right. Right. Uh, but it, it really, it would really be a radical. And again, it's hard to have these conversations now because my, my feeling is, and you're seeing a lot of, I'm not saying anything that's not being said, but my feeling is that we need, please don't, there's no, there's no national 
registry. There's no national oversight. In a perfect world, the Department of Justice would have data on every single cop in America. And there would be some sort of a minimum standard. There would be uh, some sort of a tracking where, you know, disciplinary issues or officers terminated. But also police academies need to be turned into police colleges where um, you, 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 you teach to, right now, they teach the lowest common denominator. Police yeah. academies, uh, I mean, I just, this is kind of, again, aside, I went to a police academy, a central police academy in 1981. Last year, I was thinking about going back into the workforce, and I saw there are a lot of jobs in law enforcement, not police jobs, but dispatch jobs, right. uh, you know, assist, uh, civilian, uh, whatever. So I went to a police academy in uh, Napa, which is the next county over from where I live, and it was a, uh, it was for, to be a dispatcher. And it was a night class, and it wasn't a true, you know, police academy like I went to, but it was part of a police academy at this particular um, community college. And it was run by former and current police officers. And now here I am, 60-some-odd years old, sitting in this classroom with a bunch of 18, 19-year-old kids who are thinking about becoming dispatchers. And all of these, a lot of them were going to use dispatching as a stepping stone to get into police work. And I was appalled. At the level of instruction, I was just I was stunned at how bad it was. It was regressive as compared to what I went through 40 years ago. And it's you know, it's it's a, first of all, it's cops teaching cops stuff. It's yeah. cops telling war stories and the fear based teaching is state. You know, you read these you read these terms, you know, you can go on Twitter or you can go online and read this. I lived through it. And I just it's stunning. It, it's just I, and it's kind of what you're touching on is like, why do we need to sell this stuff when it's so obvious and in our face but right. we're up against a real you know we're up against a national crisis of conscience now so it's hard to it's hard to reconcile any of this stuff but yeah so yeah it's it's it is a matter of terror it has to be torn down it has to be torn down and start over and say these are these are the parameters and you know cops Cops and the unions are a funny bunch because a lot of what's being proposed, like, first of all, I, I get the confusion with the term defunding, yeah. but but cops are a funny bunch in the fact, yeah, they don't want us to do anything. I'm like, dude, can you imagine having a job where they said, look, we're going to pay you the same. You get the same benefits, but kick back a little bit more, yeah, you know? Right. Oh, by the way, you don't have to go, you don't have to go deal with this person in, in a mental health crisis. So number one, you're not at risk for killing somebody or being sued. And B, you can stay at the coffee shop. You're good to go. You yeah. Know? That's interesting. It's true. Yeah. That, that's interesting. It is yeah. true. Yeah. Because yeah, I, I, I do think that there is confusion around the, 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 the ter the phrase defund the police and i and also I, I would imagine that it scares existing police officers and both of those things make sense but you're right in that what's being proposed really is giving police focusing what the police do more on what the police should do and and letting other people such as medical health professionals social workers or whatever do things that police are not even trained to do even though they're currently sent out to do all the time every day all across the country it 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 really it's it it can be looked at by even the police as like well hell yeah i don't i i'm not equipped to even do that and all i'm going to do is risk getting into Making, either making a situation worse, getting myself into trouble because I don't know how to handle it. It seems like you're right. It should be um, advocated even by the police. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and it's funny what you said is, you know, it's, it's what, what the police do is part of it, but the bigger issue is how they do it. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where that's where we, again, when we when we go to police colleges, how we do it. Because right now, it's it, and, and in my career, and, and again, I work in a really liberal, open-minded, I mean, God, cops in San Francisco, me included, we probably let more people go than we arrest. Mm-hmm. It's just, and, and it's very, but San Francisco is a unique place, too, because I was born and raised there. My son, the cop, he was born and raised there. He still lives there. So a lot of the cops are kind of homies, and you know they they kind of get it. So half the time you're pulling over somebody that's your homie, you know. Yeah. And then the other thing about San Francisco, it's a smaller city than people realize, and we have a lot of tourists there. So again, do you want to bite the hand that feeds you? So you pull over the tourists, and you go, okay, whatever. And, and so that's across the board. But mm. but when I say how we do it, it's it's again number one, why we're doing what we're doing, what are we doing? You know, what are the enforcement? Because we've, we've completely overregulated society. We, it's just there's so many petty crimes in the book that it's it's nuts. We live in a world like that, yeah. in a country like that. But but how we do it. And again, watching these demonstrations, these protests on TV, you know, in addition to all the police academy training that I've had, I've gone back to school a multitude of times, to community colleges, to, you know, master's program. I haven't completed any of them. But I went to law school for a couple of years, and, and I really, um, my favorite class is constitutional law. And when I see these these police actions with the with the demonstrators and the protesters, and I'm going to leave the rioters out of it, because there, there's always going to be a faction of people that are going to use the cover of the crowd. Right. But the reality is, you know, you've got a peaceful group of people, and then you've got this again, this attacking RoboCop force coming through. And I know it's not a perfect world and I'm not boots on the ground, but I know that when I did it, San Francisco, I'm, if I work one protest or demonstration, I worked a thousand of them and I got to be really good at it. And what you do is you go out there. First of all, you don't show up with all your gear and your yeah. armaments and your bazookas and shit. You show up with your soft hat and you bring a guy with you and you walk up and you try to identify somebody that may be leading the crowd or may have some sway and just say, hey, look, here's the deal. This is what we want to it people overthink this stuff and it makes me nuts. It's like can we just talk? Right. And, and I know it doesn't always work like that, but it works way more than you think. And when I see cops going, going full Barry Bonds on somebody, I just <sighs> like, Dude, what is that about? <laughs> I don't get it. You know, I don't get it. And, and, and it's just, it's been hard for me and it's made it hard for me with some of my former cronies too. Yeah. But, yeah. So it's, it's, there's kind of a mindset that feeds all this stuff. And it's, it's like I, I alluded to earlier. And again, all of these, all these quotes and phrases, you know, us against them, us versus them. You hear that all the time. But with police, there's also this winning at all costs. Mm. There's winning at all costs. And I mean, um, the, the good one was, um, I, I forget the, what was the Atlanta, where they shot the guy, the drunk driver, the guy that got out and ran. And oh the yeah, Richard Brooks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and you know you look at you look at I, I can't even list all the names going back to you know Trayvon Martin or any of these um, uh, Freddie Gray. It all starts from it's petty shit that starts it. You know, Always. it's, it's you, yeah. you're selling selling unwrapped cigarettes. Okay, I get it. You know, and I get the fact that there's a statute on the book in new york but now here's where we have to go into like when you asked me about what are the cops in the narcotics you think about targeting the, the people of color and black people it's sort of the same thing it's why are we out here enforcing this law what's the problem right is guys selling loose cigarettes there's people that want loose cigarettes the guy in the store is not happy again this is not a police problem you know, right. it's not. But instead, you send three or four cops out there. And the other thing is the one in Atlanta, and I, I actually, the most I've ever blown up on Twitter was I posted a thing after the video surfaced of the, of the shooting in Atlanta. And I said, you know, when I was a cop 
he, drunk drivers were a pain in the ass. The, 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 the aspect of arresting a drunk driver. Yeah. And I said, cops, most cops hate DUIs, hate doing them, right? Mm-hmm. And if we had the opportunity, if we had the luxury of taking the keys, driving the person home, if there was an alternative solution to arresting somebody. Now, I know I got a lot of pushback from, you know, my cousin got killed by a drunk driver. I get right. it. And I'm not saying we need to be loose on laws, but I also have to say that do we shoot people in the back for drunk driving? And if, if, you, if you want to go to, I will, I will give you that this guy was behind the wheel of a car intoxicated. So theoretically, he's constructively drunk driving. Now, yeah. there's a lot that happened in between that, that led to the shooting. But the bottom line is cops have to win at all costs. So they won't it, let the guy go, man. Let yeah. him go. Yeah. Let him go, dude. We got his car. Right. You know, we got his car. And unless... The guy running from me, he's just committed like serial murders or slaughtered a family and slaws a gun. I'm not I'm not gonna kill myself trying to or him or him trying yeah. to arrest him. Yeah, yeah. But you look you look at all these every single one of these, you know, cop related, you know, cop killings, there's no violent felonies it's that were the genesis of what happened. These are all chicken shit, little, you know, petty violations. I'll give you a, a drunk driver is more serious, but again, let him go. But cops can't do that. Cops can't, you know, they're going to, they're going to fight to the death and that's not, and, and getting back to, as I was say about, you know, uh, my, my law school experience, it's really, it's so, all of these laws can be boiled down to, you have two types of crimes. You have property crimes and you have personal crimes. And the Supreme Court has repeatedly over, over decades, over centuries has said that, you know, there's never a justification for killing somebody over a property crime. This mm-hmm. goes back to the old booby trap in the barn case yeah. and and yet you see you see these cases where cops are killing people over speeding tickets you know loose cigarettes loitering yeah so yeah, yeah. i mean the lack the, the the de-escalation is another word i uh i hear a lot and it seems like that is in in the actual situation on the ground when it arises it seems like any kind of skill set that that is uh of de-escalation is is necessary but also something as you're pointing out that you really really never ever see attempts at in these videos it's it's really the de-escalation that is emphasized uh now and in the national conversation it's really something that is more, as legitimate as of any of the other uh, gripes about what's going on. It's just, it's when you watch this shit, it seems so fucking, I mean, to my eye, again, having no experience in law enforcement, but it just seems not only easy to deescalate, but also preferable. And, and it's interesting for you to, for, to hear you talk about the, the, the winning mentality, because the, in these situations, there really isn't and shouldn't be any winning besides the, the more you can deescalate, the better it's going to be for everyone, the cops included. And that is sort of, uh, again, we talk about things that seem obvious, but are not enacted in, in the public eye. And when we see these fucking videos that are heartbreaking and terrible, it, it, it just, it's, where is the de-escalation? And, and I think a lot of it, as you pointed out, has to do with training um, and all the, all these things that that need that need to change, and and also things that police shouldn't even be responding to in the first place. It it, it I'm curious before we wrap up. I know we're running up over an hour here, but uh, now with as a former police officer, uh, when you when you hear and and 
especially one with a longer view such as that you have uh i'm curious as to how someone like you hears the the acab stuff all cops are bad when you hear that i i'm sure you're sympathetic to it I'm, i am curious though as to where you are on that because because being someone who's was a cop and i'm i know what most cops must think of themselves uh I, i'm curious as to where your head goes when you hear that when i hear the the all cops are bad yeah, or just yeah. de-escalation yeah no no all cops <clears throat> are bad yeah well you know and again i'll trot out the cliche that we keep hearing over and over again it's the whole bad apple analogy and then people are going to debate well you know what the whole bad apple thing means well what it means is the whole bunch gets rotten right and, and we all know that and, and the cops use it wrong by saying well it's just one bad apple no the whole bunch is rotten not all cops are bad and i will i will i will rebut that by saying that most of the cops that i met and worked with were generally really good people and for the most part were really good cops now that's a really broad term because right. good cop can be a guy that makes a lot of arrests or it can be a gal that knows how to go out there and talk to the community but all cops are bad by virtue of the fact that they're part of a system that has a history and it's proven again every night on the nightly news they have a history of violence have a history of racism and to be associated with or affiliate like i will tell you i'm gonna i'm gonna go ahead and fly my i'm not a racist flag okay <laughs> i'm not a racist but here's the deal i've done some racisty things in my past maybe not fully aware of them and i was part of a racist system mm -hmm. so so i can't just you know cry innocent when in fact i participated and i can justify and i can explain it away but the reality is that you know it's it's not all individual cops are bad. It's just that policing and the people that are in police work are part of a really bad system. And it may just be semantics, but that's what it is. And so, so yeah. I totally, you know, I, I kind of agree to it a great degree, but I also think that, you know, we need to remember that whenever, whenever we apply a label like that, because that's what the cops do with the communities that they don't care for. Well, yeah. all those people, those people, all those people, you know, it's like it's like in the protests and demonstrations. We have a guy who's in uh, Washington D.C. right now who's talking about Antifa and all these, you know, these. No, I, I and I tell people my my anecdotal story is 2003 when I was a sergeant and we were working the um, that was the second Gulf War, and we were working the anti-war protests. And I will tell you, I've never been so. I don't want to say thrilled, but they were. I mean, San Francisco is basically ground zero for demonstrations. It mm -hmm. always has been for all labor movements and everything else. But we had a huge, hundreds over hundred thousand people marching down Market Street, and it was just it was awe inspiring, and it was peaceful, and people were all good and happy and everything. And then towards the end, there was there was a faction of. I mean, it couldn't have been. They couldn't have been 100 people if it was 50, but I mean, out of 100,000, but they were they were bent on creating havoc and going out and doing stuff. So, again, the focus is on that and it sort of taints the whole crowd. Yeah. But then you have cops talking, you know, those fucking protesters, man, yeah. those those commie protesters, those violent looters and rioters. And it's like, dude, there was a handful of people out of 100,000. The same thing kind of holds true for the cops, too. You know, mm -hmm. there's a, there's there is there's the fringe that that there are cops. And this is how I ended up in bad stead with my former, you know, my former workers, my coworkers, is because I've been very vocal in my observation. I work with some real, 
real, real bad people, yeah. real bad dudes. And, now, and I'm not talking about overt racism, so to speak. I mean, you, you hear stuff here and there. It's more it's more the general dog whistly type stuff. Right. But I mean, I just, you know, you use a term de-escalation. And again, we'll do another podcast and we'll talk about police training. Yeah. De-escalation is a nice thing in theory. The, the problem is, number one, we should be hiring training cops that are already masters of basically Zen, that should be able to go into a situation and calm it down. My challenge as a cop and later on as a sergeant was working around with those guys that were the agitators, those yeah. guys that would stir it up, that would show up at a calm situation and elevate it. Next thing you know, shit's hit the fan because a cop couldn't handle the stuff because he had a bad day or he's getting divorced or he's a racist. Right. So, yeah. So, no, not all cops are bad, but all the, the policing system is bad and anybody who's in it needs to recognize that and, and try to improve. Maybe not not necessarily snitching off a bad cop, but being a better cop and trying to weed those cops out. Yeah, it is interesting that I find it particularly interesting that the defense is always, well, it is a few bad apples, but it, what a bad apple is, the, the rest of the, the, even the expression is that a bad apple ruins the whole batch because all of them mm -hmm. become rotten. And it doesn't matter mm -hmm. if it's just one, if you're going to eat one of the fucking apples in that bunch, it's going to be rotten because th there's a couple rotten ones in there. So even that defense inherently works against that defense and, 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 and only points more to what, uh, what you're saying and, 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 and what a lot of people are saying right now, which is like, right. Individually may, there are people who are police who are not bad people. That is an absolute obvious fact. But this fact is also true that one at bad apple does ruin the whole bunch. And, and it really, yeah, it's, 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 it's been amazing and fascinating to hear your perspective. I, we should probably wrap up. I don't know if there's anything else you want to talk about before, before we hop off, but uh, this has been, this has been great for, for, for me. I mean, this is something that, um, is on everyone's mind right now. And I think conversations like this are more important than ever, you know? I, I'll tell you, I, I, uh, I listened to your podcast for the past week. I, mean, <laughs> I told my wife, I said, I, I probably shouldn't listen to him because you sound just like you, you're more expressive. You drop a lot more F-bombs. Yeah, I'm right on the same, I'm right on the same page with you. And I, and I really do think that there needs to be more conversations. And, and like, like I alluded to before, and again, if we talk again, I'll talk about, you know, I've been, I've been blacklisted by by cops, and actually, I was told, asked to not come back. I used to go to the city every once in a while after retired, and I would stop by my former police station, and I was asked not to go in there because I've made some really critical observations. Because the way, yeah. again, the cops look at it, most cops, most cops are good cops, but generally speaking, if you criticize the police, you know what that makes you, doesn't it? Don't you? It makes you anti-cop. Right. Yeah. And, and, and it's so funny because nothing could be further from the truth, obviously. Right. Years, but so so it's it's and, and again, that goes to the heart of what we're trying to change with the system. You know, there's we could talk all day long about, you know, legalizing drugs and all the benefits. But there's always going to be those cops that are just no those, you know, whatever the, the, the chosen group of drug users is. But it is. It's those druggies. It's those people. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a lot, but I really, um, I really appreciate the opportunity of being able to talk to you and yeah, anytime you want to follow up or yeah, let's do it again your, for sure. Yeah. Any of your, any of your listeners want to talk to me, I'm easily accessible. You got my number. Cool. Uh, and you said you're on Twitter, right? Is that, you mentioned Twitter earlier. Yeah, I'm on Twitter. What's your handle? At Carl, I'm at I'm Carl T at will the shrill. 
Okay, great. Uh, well, thanks so much, Carl. Let's talk again soon. I really appreciate your time and everything that you're doing. Keep doing it, and uh, I'll talk to you soon, man. You too, you too, man. You keep it up. Thanks, man. Talk to you. Bye.